0: reading at verse 6 through verse 11. That text reads, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a complimentary scripture that comes to mind going with this and with our subject today is John 15, 13, I believe. Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And in verses 7 and 8 there, it speaks of laying down one's life or dying for somebody else. And literally... If that was to be done, one person would be substituting their life for someone else's life. And that is our subject, the great and glorious wonderful doctrine of substitution that is taught in the Bible. As life goes by, some people will have opportunity to do what this text is talking about and what the Lord talked about. The opportunity, and I say opportunity because I really don't know how else to put it unless we called it circumstances, which again the circumstances would present the opportunity, to where a person could have that choice to lay down their life in order that somebody else's life might be spared. And I don't know if you've thought about that much, about... If faced with that, what you would do, or what you're sure you would do, or what you could do. Probably you have, if you are a parent for sure. And uh, maybe even uh, with siblings or other family members. Many have had this opportunity. And some have done exactly what the scripture says. They have given their life in order that another life might be spared. And some have refrained from doing so. Some of us maybe would. Some of us maybe would not. A lot of it might depend on who the individual was. Certainly, again, when we get to family members, those closest to us, those we love the most, or even our own children, I think we probably would all go on record as saying that yes, if it came down to it, i would certainly lay down my life for my spouse or my children and certainly it would be easier to lay down one's life for someone who was innocent it seemed or undeserving of dying and of course what we're talking about here in this subject is what many books and stories have been written and many movies have been made it is a tender thing to the human heart, isn't it? For one person to be able to take another person's life in order to spare it. And this is what the author is speaking about here in the contrast he's making concerning Christ because in verse 7 he speaks about, for a righteous man will one die scarcely, peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. And the reference there to a righteous man is simply referring to an innocent man, a man that would be innocent, perhaps someone who has been convicted or accused, condemned unjustly in that regard. And that would be certainly a cause worthy, wouldn't it, to if given that opportunity to spare someone who was innocent in that regard. Then it says, peradventure, or perhaps even for a good man, would some even dare to die. And do note, the first one was scarcely, and the last one is would even dare to die. Now we know there are no righteous individuals, and we know there are no good people. The Bible declares that. But again, it's speaking in the context of somebody who has been unjustly condemned to die. And then a good man, a person of good or reputable character, a charitable person, a benevolent person, you know, that type of mercy. Doesn't mean they don't have sin. But someone who is of good character and does good for people and so forth and so on, then again, that person might be considered worthy to lay down your own life for. Within that character, we might think also about those of authority or in prominent positions. Kings, queens, emperors, presidents, high-ranking generals, you know. I mean, generals certainly more important than the private, you know. If the private was to lay down his life, that the leader could be spared, certainly admirable, things like that. And then again, even going to the president who's surrounded by secret service people and all people like that in authority, again, those individuals are there for that very purpose, to put their life on the line in order to spare the other's life, right? So this is what we're dealing with. And it brings a lot of questions to our mind, doesn't it? Could I? Would I? Should I? And again, a lot of it might be pinned on who the individual was. Well, let's go a step further. What about an individual who is guilty of a heinous crime and who is condemned and who is worthy of capital punishment? Could you lay down your life for a person like that, like you could your own child or spouse or brother or sister? Brings a difficulty into the mix, doesn't it? You know those you love. This individual would be a total stranger. Or what about even this? What about an enemy? An enemy in the sense that this person did not like you, mistreated you, or we might even get to the extent that they vehemently hated you. Could you lay down your life for somebody like that? Who would? Who could in that regard? And also going back to the choice matter. It would be easier to lay down your life probably or make that decision if it was a child rather than an adult, wouldn't it? Because we're naturally going to be, most of us, tender-hearted to a child. I think very obviously a man would be easier for a man to lay down his life for a woman than for another man in that regard. And if it came down to it, right to the nitty-gritty, we might even make the choice of, if given a choice, and again, I'm talking about if there's only one seat left on the boat or something like that, you know, of choosing a healthy individual over an unhealthy individual. Or a young person who still has years, perhaps, to live over a person who's old in that regard. And we could even get even more finicky and fickle than that and saying that if come down to it, we might choose to lay down our life for a beautiful person rather than an ugly person. All those things affect maybe our decision. But the bottom line is, and the contrast is here, Christ laid down his life. Verse 8, Christ died for us. And we were the epitome of all of those bad things that I just referred to. Because verse 6 says Christ died for the ungodly, not the godly. We have said before when God made his choices, there was no good to choose. It was all bad. I love what somebody summarized in reading about psalms 14 that said god looked down to see if there were any righteous any that seeketh after god and so forth and so on it's where we get the scripture back in romans 3 there is none righteous, and there's none that seeketh after god it's quoted in psalm 14 and psalm 53 and i heard an individual summarizer read this one time that if you put the whole human race in a brown paper bag and opened it up and turned it upside down nobody would come out first and that's, that's about as good a way as I know it, that there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh God. We've all sinned and come short of the glory. Not one of us is ahead of another human being when it comes to being a sinner. We're all the same. Now, if you want to get into an argument about being a better sinner than somebody else, go ahead and waste your time. But that's a, that's a very foolish process to think of. But Christ died for the ungodly he died for the unworthy he died for the bad he died for the ugly he died for the old he died for the young all all of those negative things that we entertained in introduction there all can be reduced down to each of us as sinners and this is what makes the doctrine or the teaching of substitution so amazing this is what makes salvation by grace so amazing. Why would anybody do that? If you chose to lay down your life for a condemned criminal, people would probably say you were the biggest fool that ever lived because that person deserves to die. Just let them be die. Let them be killed, you know. You would not be praised for your compassion, probably. You'd probably be demeaned for doing such a foolish act to somebody that deserved to die anyway. And we could get into other areas, but you you know what I'm talking about there. Yet Christ did that very thing and more. And more. Because there was nobody good to die for. There was nobody righteous. There was nobody attractive or beautiful or that could pay him back at Calvary's cross for the ungodly and for sinners is, of course, the only way and means of salvation. If the doctrine were not substitution, there would be no such thing as salvation because salvation is by the substitutionary death of only one individual, the only begotten Son of God. It is unparalleled, it is compre, say It uncomprehensible the substitutionary death of Christ. Whether you're talking about the why, the how, all of it. But that's the doctrine we are depending upon today as we just sang, is it not? And the key thing I want you to notice in this, in verse 8, when we're talking about substitution is those two little words there at the end. Christ died for us. For us. For us. And I'll just give you a little heads up right here. If you want to be blessed, just run that through your concordance and look at the verses that have that for us. You talk about a blessing. I don't don't have time or I'd have done every one of them for you today. I thought about printing out a sheet in this message just reading them all off and saying this is substitution according to the Bible because it tells about all the stuff, the different words, what was accomplished in our salvation and our redemption by Christ for us. Us. Kind of description of us in verse 6. As sinners says there were yet without strength when we were we were weak impotent helpless hopeless as far as our own salvation is concerned all sinners are sinners think they can save themselves but sinners unless god shows them by grace do not reveal how do not know how weak they are It is not just the sinner that's saved, it's the hopeless sinner that is saved. The hopeless sinner. The sinner who has come to the end of their rope, so to speak, and realizes no matter what they do or what they think they can do or could do, given enough time, it will never be enough. Sinners are in a hopeless state, they just don't know it. But when you come to the real point, you realize how hopeless you are, you're a candidate for salvation. That's the candidate the Philippian jailer was. God being, you know, what must I do to be saved? He was at the end of themselves. He was about to commit suicide, by the way. So as sinners, we are weak and impotent. And in verse 6, we are ungodly. Ungodly. All sinners are ungodly. No reverence for God in that respect. Verse 7, none of us were righteous. We were all unrighteous. And no matter how good we may have been in the eyes of other, in the eyes of God, we were as rotten to the core. For God looks on the heart and not upon the outward appearance, right? So we were bad people. We were wicked. When you read in your Bible about the wicked, you're reading about yourself. You're not reading about somebody else. If you've been saved by grace, you know that. When you read wicked, evil, that's me. The sinner that is living in denial thinks of somebody else. I know because that's exactly the way I thought when I was lost. I could hear things preached about judgment and bad people and the evil people do and the evil people thinks. And I never thought of me. I was just a little boy. But boy, I could think of my friends. Yeah, he did that. He lied to me. He stole that. He took that. He, you know, so easy to think of others. But thank God, by His grace, He can hone that right down and funnel it right down where when God convicts you of sin, you don't see nobody but you. Again, if God hadn't done that to you, I pray He'll do that to you today. Because we're sinners, we were even down to verse 10, we were also God's enemies. And we made ourselves enemies of God. He didn't become our enemy. We were his enemies because we were sinners. So what we've just seen here describes the need and the why of it. Verse 12, we didn't read it, but one man sin entered the world death by sin, death passed upon all men for all have sinned. So there is the need for someone else to save. Man cannot save himself The death pronouncement is upon him. And the second death awaits him, which is punishment for his sin. So the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace by the substitution of God's own son. Substitution, salvation, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And substitution is throughout the Bible. I want to show you that just a little bit and uh, remind you of it, of its frequency, of how often God sets it forth. We'll do that pretty fast. And then, of course, we want to talk about the accomplishment of it. But chronologically speaking, when is the first time you think the doctrine of substitution is either seen or taught in the Bible? Well, it's very quick after Adam's sin that we read about in verse 12. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis 3 there, I believe it's about verse, I can't remember. Maybe it's 12, I want to say. But that God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. First time a third party comes into that, of that breach between God and man, the creature. Animals. Animals. We don't know how God did it. We don't know what God did to accomplish that. But the bottom line is that's the first death that there was. And God did it. And He did it very clearly a picture of atonement. Because two things happened for Adam and Eve to be clothed with animal skins. Number one, an animal had to die, blood had to be shed. For them to be covered, their nakedness covered by the skins of the sacrificed animals. That's substitution. Substitution. And it was not another human being that died, but an animal in that regard. So again, Adam didn't die for Eve. Eve didn't die for Adam. That's what I'm saying. But animals did. And then quickly you could go right on and when children were born to him, what's the next time we see substitution? Well, it wasn't in Cain's offering. There was a substitution there, but it was an inadequate substitution, wasn't it? Because it was the fruit of the ground. And there was no blood involved, there was no sacrifice, there was no life taken, no blood spilled, and therefore his offering was rejected. But Abel's offering, again, is a picture of what? Substitution. Abel offered an animal out of his flock. Bloodshed, death, as substitution. Of course, one of the greatest there is in all the Bible is Abraham and Isaac, isn't it? I mean, doesn't get any plainer than that. What a marvelous, marvelous thing that is. Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son, believing that God would raise him up. And yet there was a substitute in the thicket caught by its horns, right? I mean, beautiful picture of substitution. We see the life of Joseph just briefly mentioned, how that by one individual being sold, suffering, so forth and so on, one individual, others were delivered. If Joseph hadn't been in the position he was in, his family would have perished, it appears, hypothetically, doesn't it? And of course, in the incarceration or the bondage of Egypt, what is the marvelous thing that liberated them? What was the final plague? It was the institution of the Passover and the death of the firstborn, was it? And again, what did that involve? It involved a third party death and blood being put upon the lintel and the doorposted. And then the Bible, of course, says Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. All of that, no doubt about it, all that was a picture of the one substitute. When you get into the Mosaic laws, and again, we've talked about it, and none of us here can comprehend all the blood that was shed all the animals that died we've recently preached about solomon and all the sacrifice that were made in the dedication of the temple we don't comprehend that and a lot of us in this church have been involved in butchering things whether it was rabbits or chickens from our childhood all the way through and hunting and killing and butchering and we know what a task it is we know what work it is we know what it takes to do that and we can't comprehend hundreds or thousands of that But that's what the Mosaic Law was all about, wasn't it? Substitutes. Animals, bullocks, lambs, goats, scapegoats, and all of that. Substitute simply means in the place of another. That's what a substitute is. And those animals were a picture of. They did not redeem no one. They did not remove one sin of one person. They were only a picture of the one that would redeem. Turn with me to that marvelous 53rd of Isaiah, if you would, please. And let me just point out a few verbs from that 53rd chapter that speaks of substitution. We'll begin with verse 4, and I'm just going to pick these out notice it. This is what substitution is. Speaking of Christ the Messiah... And it's all about, just like our text in Romans 5, He and us. He and us. What He did for us. Verse 4. He borne our griefs. He bore it. Our substitute. He carried our sorrows. Substitution. He was stricken of God in our place. He was smitten of God. In our place. He was afflicted of God. In our place. Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised in our place for our iniquities. The chastening that should have been ours was upon him. With his stripes or scourging, they should have been ours. He was, in verse 6, the Lord laid on him our iniquities. Again, substitution. Verse 7, he was oppressed for us. He was afflicted for us. He was as a lamb to the slaughter when it should have been us. Verse Eight, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Again, we've already used that word. Down in verse 10, he was bruised. He was put to grief. His soul an offering for sin. All of this speaking of the substitutionary death of Christ. It even goes on to say that he poured out his soul unto death when it should have been us. That's what substitution is. All those things we read about there in Isaiah, it's all about substitution. He's standing and bearing before God what should have been ours. Christ died for us. If you're a believer today, that's substitution. And it is amazing to contrast, again, when you think of all the animals that were pictures of Christ's substitution, and yet all of them put together were still insufficient. They were only a picture of the one and true that could really take away sin. That's just amazing, isn't it? And the proof of that, of course, is when Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent. rent. That was the end of animal sacrifices. They were only pictures of. And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of our high priest and the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He entered once and accomplished what all those could never accomplish. Now we say to you unequivocally today that Christ is the only adequate substitute. He is the only adequate mediator. He's the only adequate advocate that we have with God. He's the only one that God would accept as a substitute. And yet as sinners, sinners are always making their own substitutes. It is so sad to think about the substitutionary idolatrous practices that so many lives that have been taken, murdered in pagan sacrifices in order to quote-unquote appease the God or gods that they believed in. Thousands, sometimes in a day, they say. And I don't want to dwell here long, but I just want to say this in contrast to what idolatry has done, to what under the Mosaic economy and all the animals that died, and none of that accomplished anything. Not that blood. Of course, the Mosaic law, the sacrifice, as we've seen, they pointed to Christ who would, the Lamb of God. But all those other people and all those idolaters pagan practices. And Israel was even involved in it in the Old Testament. You know, they sacrificed their children in some of that stuff. And all for naught. All thinking they were doing good. I mean, the Aztecs in Mexico City built walls out of human skulls and mud. It's unbelievable. It's beyond comprehension. All of these, some sort of meant to be an appeasing sacrifice. Again, there's only one substitute, and that's Christ. An animal that was insufficient, why? Because it was man that sinned. And man must pay the price for his sin. And so the Bible tells us that Christ became incarnate for suffering. An angel was not qualified to die and be a substitute for mankind no more than a goat or a sheep or a bullock or another human being. I couldn't die for you. You couldn't die for me. Moses couldn't die for Aaron or Aaron for Moses or Miriam. Because what? We're all sinners. We all have the same need in that respect. But the Bible tells us very clearly and we see this, I'll go back to the Passover, about the requirements for the proper substitute. There were very specific requirements. I don't want to go into a lot of detail here, but just remember, wasn't there? For the Passover Paschal Lamb, it had to be put up way in advance and examined to make sure that it was healthy, without spot, without blemish, no problems, anything. And all that was for a reason, folks, to tell us that that which would be sacrificed and substituted for sin must be absolutely holy pure spotless and without blemish nothing else would do that is so clearly set forth in the passage and Christ was exactly that very thing 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for he had made him For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be the righteousness of God in him. Now, there's a lot of things you can look at and rejoice in and believe there, but probably you do not think of substitution when you read that. You think of other things. But that's substitution. He knew no sin, but he was made as if he was a sinner. He bore sin. Substitutionary that we might be and have the imputed righteousness of him. Substitution. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 we read, Christ who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth. So Christ was the only qualified individual to be a substitute for sinners. We won't labor that point. There's many other scriptures we could go to, but again, we think we've said sufficient for this point. But again, Hebrews 2.17 tells us this is why he came and became a man. And the incarnation is so full of so many things, so rich, But the bottom line is, if Christ was going to be our substitute for the remission of sins, He had to be one of us. He could not be foreign to us, like an animal or like an angel. Yet at the same time, He had to be, as the Passover lamb, spotless, sinless, holy, right before God. So this just narrows it down to nothing but the Son of God. Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And he was our high priest. He was unique in being our high priest in that he didn't offer something else like the Levitical priest did. He offered himself. Our high priest offered himself. He was both high priest and the sacrificial lamb. So he had to be one of us. Thus we have the incarnation. Thus we have the virgin birth. Adam's sin was not imputed to him. He did not have Adam's sin or Adam's nature being conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Ghost. So he was he met all the requirements as a sinless, spotless Son of God. Therefore, He could redeem us. Here in Romans again, in the 8th chapter in verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So again, in the likeness. He was in the likeness. But he was without sin. He did not have a sin nature. He not only did not sin, but he was impeccable, meaning he could not sin. Philippians chapter 2, familiar scripture in verse 7 and 8. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Final point here is this, that not only was he qualified to be the substitute for sinners, but he was not obligated to. He willingly became our substitute. Now, he covenanted with the Father to do that in the everlasting covenant. The Father chose He gave to the Son. The Son agreed to die for So there was the covenant. We don't deny that. But what we're saying is nobody forced Him to die for us. He willingly did. That's very clear. We mentioned this here just the other day or last week or two. You know, John 10 and 18. That He had power to lay down His life. And He had power to take His life up. And that nobody take his life. And you remember he even said, could I not call twelve legions of angels? But he didn't need twelve legions of angels. I mean, when he spoke and said, I am he in the garden, they all fell back. He didn't need anything. But he willingly did this. Now this goes back to our introduction. Who could you wholeheartedly without reservation, willingly love enough to give up your own life? Don't even answer it because we don't really know that situation. But Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life out of love for enemies for ungodly rebellious sinners not for friends not for siblings in the literal sense of the word and in so doing our text tells us what he accomplished in verse nine we are now justified by his blood the only justification there is is by the blood of the lamb we say in our song books don't we Not by the blood of animals, not by any blood of any other kind other than the blood of the sinless Son of God. Key word, sinless. Okay? We are justified by His substitutionary death. That blood that was shed at Calvary is the only blood that can save. The only blood. Now again, I don't think we can measure all the blood that has been shed in animal sacrifices. But it could not atone. Animals did not require it or God's standard. If you're justified by His blood in verse 9, you're saved from God's wrath through Him. God's wrath was poured out on Christ. It should have been ours. God's wrath will be poured out on the unbelieving for for all eternity. There'll never be an end to it. It's a debt that will never be paid, as we said in Sunday school this morning. Nobody can pay their sin debt. Not now, not in eternity. But as we sang, Jesus, our substitute, paid it all. He paid all that was... We are reconciled to God. How? By the death of Christ for us. By His death, we have been reconciled. We have been, as the last part of verse 10 says, saved by His life. His righteousness imputed to us. And finally, verse 11, we have joy through our Lord Jesus Christ because we have received the atonement. Meaning, What Christ did by His substitutionary death has been applied to us. If you're a believer today, then you're covered by the blood. Just like in the Passover. They were covered by the blood. That was the whole idea, wasn't it? The blood on the doorpost. Blood over the top there. And everybody within that dwelling place was under the blood, covered by the blood, and therefore they were saved here being reconciled we shall be or rather by whom we have now received the atonement it means it's been applied in Egypt it was applied on the door if you're saved today it's been applied to your heart you know you're covered by the blood of Jesus let's conclude I hope you know and have gotten and gleaned from something I have said just exactly what substitution means that Christ died for me. He died in my place. He bore my sin. He carried my grave. He died under my penalty. Not His own. All those things, Isaiah 53 and everything we have said. But the bottom line is again, Him for me. Christ for us. That's substitution. That's what makes Christianity, true biblical Christianity, so unique. Nobody has a doctrine of salvation like this. All false doctrines, religions, whatever you want to call them, idolatry, it's all the doing of something. Ours is substitution, pure and simple, pure and simple. I like what Peter said, and I'm going to read that. We'll be done. 1 Peter 3.18 If you haven't got what I've said, then maybe this will hit home. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And this is as plain as it gets, folks. The just for the unjust. In fact, in another place in Scripture, he's called, uh, Peter said on the day of Pentecost, You have murdered the just one. And let me say to you, he was the only just one there ever has been. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. 1 John 3.16, John said, 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16. He laid down His life for us. I trust today that you know Christ as your substitute. And if you do, you know Him as your Savior. We declare to you in closing today, if you're seeking some other kind of substitute, you're wasting your time. I say that bluntly but compassionately. Do not think your works or anything you do or your baptism or your church or your whoever or whatever can atone for your sins. It cannot. God has made it so plain. As such, we pray God may give you that grace this very day.